The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the second chapter, verses 20, 21, and 22. Verses 20, 21, and 22 in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidst, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Now here we are continuing this first address which was delivered by the prophet Jeremiah to the children of Israel in the name of God. And I would remind you very hurriedly at the beginning that what he is really doing is to try to show Israel her unutterable folly in refusing to turn back to God. That's his message. They're in trouble. Everything's gone wrong. They're unhappy. And they realize that unless something happens and that quickly, that all will be lost. So they're running to Egypt, turning to Assyria resorting to all sorts and kinds of expedients and devices. But it doesn't help them. And the prophet is here to tell them why all this cannot finally be of any avail to them. Why? Well, because they can do what they like as long as they leave. The one cause of their troubles unattended to, it obviously cannot be efficacious. And as he's telling her, all her troubles as a nation are due to just one thing, and that is their folly in turning away from God. As we saw last week, God's charge against them is that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. The whole basis of their life was wrong. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but they didn't fear the Lord. And therefore, they must be wrong in every respect, and they were. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But they had ceased to fear him. And fear is not craven fear. It is an intellectual, intelligent understanding of men in his relationship to God. That wasn't governing their lives. So they turned their backs upon God, took up idols and worshipped them, went the way of other nations. And here they are in their desperate trouble. That's why all they're doing is of no value to them. They're not dealing with the essential cause of their troubles. It is their departure from God that has brought them into trouble. And it is God alone who can deliver them from their trouble. Now that's the message of the apostle. But in spite of the fact that God had sent many previous prophets with this selfsame message to this nation of Israel, they wouldn't listen. Here is the last of a great succession. And still, they will not listen to him. What utter madness. Now, that's the message. 
It's divided up, as we've been seeing on a number of Sunday nights, in order that the truth might be brought home. God is pleading with them, putting the case to them, like a barrister, argument after argument, every one of them designed to show them their unutterable folly, the madness of their whole position, of their refusal to turn back to God. Well, now, we are looking into all this, as I say, for one reason only. This isn't a mere academic, theoretical interest in the story of the children of Israel. No, no, we are looking at it for this one reason, that what was true of them is so true of us today. It is because we've got here a perfect picture of modern men and modern society that I'm calling your attention to it. The world is again in trouble. Terrible trouble. We all know about that. I take it we wouldn't be in this building at this moment unless we'd got a problem, unless we felt there was something wrong. We are here because we've got our own personal problems. We're in difficulties in various ways. We're not satisfied. And we see the whole state of the world. What's the matter? What's the cause? Well, my message is that it's exactly the same as it was in the days of Jeremiah of old, it's always been the same. The Bible says that from beginning to end. Subsequent history after the end of the New Testament canon proves that beyond any doubt at all. Now let me put it like this. What's the problem? Here it is in a nutshell. Here we are this evening meeting together in the season of Advent. Fortnight today will be Christmas Sunday. We are thinking of the coming of the Son of God into this world. Advent. In other words, we are concerned about a, a great historical fact and event which took place nearly 2,000 years ago. This is a Christian church. What's the meaning of Christian? Well, this is it, isn't it? Not a, a new idea, a new philosophy. Christianity means this, that God has done something. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. Christianity means that something has happened in this world, and that something was the birth of that babe in Bethlehem, who was none other than the Son of God. Now then, the message is this, you see, that God has sent his only Son into this world. For what? Well, for this reason, in order to rescue it, in order to save it. He said so. The Son of Man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. God has taken this mighty action, has sent his only son into this world in order to get us out of our troubles, our problems, our terrible predicament, and not only to save us in time, but to save us for all eternity and to lead us to an inheritance of glory in his holy presence. Now, God has done this. This is 1960, 1960 years since that great event took place, the Incarnation. The coming of the Son of God. But he not only came, he taught. Still more important, he died deliberately on a cross on Calvary's hill. What was he doing there? Same thing. He said the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but a minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. He died that we might be forgiven. That's Christianity. Not only forgiven. A new life is offered. A new nature. New start. New beginning. New power. That's what's offered in the gospel. And yet, isn't this the position? 
The world isn't interested. This country isn't interested. The great overwhelming majority of people in this country regard this as an utter and a complete irrelevance. Oh, it's all right for children, perhaps. All right to talk about a vague Christian spirit, but are they interested in the fact that God has sent his only son into the world and even to the death of the cross? And we know they're not. They say, what's this got to do with it? Look at our problems. They're political. They're economic. They're social. Look at these great problems. Now they say, you know, this is really a little bit of pie in the sky, this is. This is a sort of fairy tale. Why not be practical? Why not deal with bombs? Why not deal with the possibility of war? Haven't you got something to say about Algeria? Haven't you got something to say about the Congo? Can't you propose some resolution? That's what the world thinks is being practical and relevant. You see, the world is still trying this and that, turning everywhere. But things go from bad to worse. Why? Well, you see, it's still the same answer. The world won't listen to what God says. The world won't listen to God's message. Even though God has sent his only son into the world, the world isn't interested. Feels it's got nothing to do with our practical situation. Isn't that the trouble? In other words, we're back again in this old position. Things go from bad to worse. God sends his messenger, sends his own son but the world doesn't listen and goes on hurtling itself to the final disaster and doom. Now then, here is our question. Why does mankind behave like that? Why isn't it that the whole world isn't delighted to think tonight that God has done something and that he's offering us a, a, a salvation which can be obtained immediately? Why doesn't everyone say, oh, what a wonderful thing, that I can be forgiven of God, that I can be reconciled to God, that I can be given a new start and a new nature and a new power. Why doesn't the whole world jump at it and accept it? Why is there anybody who is not a Christian? That's the question. And you see, the answer is given us here in these three verses that we are looking at tonight. What's the matter with men? Well, it's the same old trouble, the same old story as we have in the case of the children of Israel. The trouble is that man is so terribly ignorant concerning the truth about himself. The trouble is that man doesn't realize his need of Christ. That's why people don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't see any need of him. They say, Christ, well, why? Why should I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's it got to do with me? They, they feel there's no relationship. In other words, they've never seen their need of Christ. They've never seen any need of deliverance. They think they can do it themselves. This is man's final and fundamental trouble. It is his appalling ignorance about himself and about his condition in sin. Now let me put it to you like this that I may expound these three verses to you. Man's uh, trouble is that he's not aware of his total inability in three main respects. That's his trouble. He doesn't know this truth about himself, I say, and he doesn't know it in three main respects. There are three respects according to this message, and it's the message of the Bible everywhere, in which man is totally incapable, totally unable. But he doesn't know that. 
These people didn't know it. They thought they could do it. They thought they could send down to Egypt, send down to Assyria. Ah, this is, this is, but nothing came of it. Man's still doing that. Why? Well, because he doesn't realize that down in the depths in these three vital respects, he is completely and totally incapable and unable. What are they? Well, the first is the power of sin. Man doesn't realize his helplessness. Face to face with the power of sin. That's why he doesn't believe in Christ, I say. He doesn't know much about this problem of sin. And especially he doesn't know much about its power. Where do you find that? Well, here it is. Uh, For of old I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And thou saidst, I will not transgress. But you've said that, says the prophet, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. That means, of course, that they were turning to idols. Harlotry here means idolatry. Turning away from the only true God, the husband of the nation, and behaving like an unfaithful wife. Turning to others instead of remaining true to the heavenly husband. Harlotry. But you see the principle that is taught us here. Here were these children of Israel. They'd got into trouble, and whenever they were in trouble, they were shocked. They were amazed. They came to their senses like the prodigal son. And they said, now, we are very sorry about this. We've done wrong, we've sinned, we've gone astray. Oh, they say, we are very sorry. If you'll only forgive us, we'll never do it again. I will not transgress. They took solemn pledges and vows. They said to God, we'll never do this anymore. We'll never sin against you. We'll never transgress thy holy laws anymore. Just give us another chance. We really do mean it this time. We really mean business. We are going to do it. You read their story. And you will find that constantly they did that. Some of the psalmists describe it in great detail. It's all in Psalm 106. Oh, these people every time in trouble went back to God and this is what they said, I will not transgress. And they meant it. They believed it. And furthermore, they believed that they could put their promise into practice. And man is still doing the same thing. We all know exactly what I mean in our own personal experiences and in our own private lives. Isn't this the story of men? Isn't it the story of everybody? We do wrong. We get into trouble. We're shocked. We're amazed. We're surprised at ourselves. We suffer, as we saw last week, the consequences. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. And we've known what it is to be in the power of remorse. We've suffered. We've hated ourselves. We've kicked ourselves. We've been annoyed with ourselves. And what have we said? We've said, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I will not transgress anymore. I'm really going to pull myself together. Isn't this the story of every individual? We make our resolves. We take our resolutions. We give our promises. And of course we really believe it. There's no question about our sincerity at that point. We are full of good intentions, noble intentions. We really are determined to do this. Oh, 
I wonder how many tragedies there are in the world tonight over this very point. You can read about this in the books, in the novels, in the biographies. Well, you can even see it on your television sets and listening to the radio. Some of these programs depicted very well. Men getting into trouble and going back to a wife and saying, Give me another chance. I'm really going to pull myself together. I'm really going to do it this time. I know I failed, but I will not transgress. Well, after some hesitation, they give him another chance. Isn't this the story of life? Men and women in the grip of sin and evil, pulling themselves together. They've done something terribly bad, something unusually bad, and they react in horror. And they say, oh, I, I'll never do it again. Give me another opportunity. The world is full of this, isn't it? We are coming to the season of the coming of a new year, and men and women will be taking their New Year's resolutions. Ah, oh, they'll really mean it. They'll be determined to do it. They want to do it, they say. They'd give everything if they could only do it. But they're going to do it. I will not transgress. But what is the story? What does it lead to? No, I just want to be realistic. This isn't pessimism. I'm just facing facts. Look at your own experience, my friend. When you've said that to yourself or to somebody else, what does it lead to? What's the result? This was the result in the case of Israel. Thou saidst, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Nothing came of it. Always failing. Always returning and going back to the same sin. Breaking the pledges and the vows. This was always the story of Israel. It is the story of the human race tonight. It is the story, I say, of individuals one by one. Let me summarize it again in the famous words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. The good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I do. Isn't this life? Isn't this experience? I'll never do that again. And yet you do it again. Back and back you fall to the same sin and to the same temptation. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what form it takes. It can be physical. It can be spiritual. This takes many forms. Many people have said this about a temper. Or about a bitter spirit. Or about saying things suddenly without controlling their tongues. They say, I'll never do that again. Forgive me. I didn't mean it came out. I won't do it again, but they do it again. Now I say the whole tragedy of life tonight is very largely due to the fact that we're all in some shape or form saying, I will not transgress, and then immediately going and transgressing. Now the question is, what's the cause of this? Why are people like this? Why is this true of life in this world? And the answer, you see, is the answer given here in this book. It is the power of sin. Man doesn't realize that. He doesn't know it. It is because he is not aware of the power of sin and evil round and about him that he is so constantly falling to it. You see, we don't like the very category of sin. We don't feel it's polite. We don't feel it's very intellectual. We've tried to abolish it in terms of psychology. And that, of course, is the essence of our trouble. 
that though we are not aware of sin, sin is still there. Well, some of us meet here on Sunday mornings, you know, and for many weeks now we've been considering a text which says this, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Oh, the power of sin and evil and temptation. My dear friends, don't we all know something about it? You can't live in a city like London without seeing something like this. Sin attacking you on every corner that you round, on the hoardings, in the newspapers, television, wireless. What is it? Suggestion. Sin, evil, temptation. And oh, the power of it all. How subtle it is and how clever it is and how powerful it all is. But man isn't aware of this. All he knows is that he keeps on failing and that he says, I'm not going to do it anymore. I will not transgress. And yet in spite of all these resolves and good resolutions, he isn't able to carry it out. Why? Well, I say, it's the power of sin. Why did the Son of God ever come into this world, I ask? Well, the answer is because of the power of sin. Why don't men believe in him? Because they don't know the power of sin and they don't see any need of him. Our proverb puts it very perfectly, doesn't it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We're all full of good intentions. That's not our trouble. Our intentions are all right. But how to perform that which is good, I wot not. I know that the law of God is all right. I want to be good. But how to do it? That's the problem. The good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. What's the matter with me? Well, it is, I say, this awful power that's round and about me. That suddenly comes. And it's not only the strength of the power outside, it is the weakness of the will of men to oppose it all. But man doesn't like to think that his will is weak. We're living in an age when man is glorifying men and talking about willpower. Man's proud of himself, proud of his mind, proud of his understanding, and especially proud of his will. His willpower. There's nothing man can't do, he believes. He argues that because he's able to discover these wonderful scientific discoveries, because he's able to harness the ocean and the wind and the atom, that he can manage himself. He's only got to put his mind to it. Of course he can. Certainly. Why not? And so he says, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to get rid of that. And then he begins to try it, and he soon discovers how weak he is. What's the matter with men? Well, the trouble is, you see, not only the power of sin, but that the will of men is paralyzed. Oh, why is it that men can't see that? Why doesn't he start with himself and his own failure and ask himself a few questions? What explains the fact that though I am in unhappy and I'm in trouble and I'm ashamed, so much so that I say, I will not transgress, I'll never do that again. I really hate myself. I'm never going to do it again. And yet I do it again. Well, why doesn't men now proceed and say, well, now what's the matter with him? And why doesn't he see that there is weakness in his will, that his will is paralyzed? Whatever his resolutions However firm and strong is resolved, the moment temptation comes, he's as weak as water. He's gone down. Oh, you can illustrate this endlessly. Look at that poor drunkard. 
He really has given his wife a promise. He's coming home at a given time. He doesn't arrive home at a given time. Why not? Well, he simply happened to run into a friend, an old friend. He's gone, down at once. In spite of the thought and the promise and the resolution and everything. But it doesn't apply only to drink. It applies to a thousand and one things. The things that we keep on repeating, though we know they're wrong. What's the matter? Weakness of the will. You see, the Bible says that when men fell, he fell as a whole, the whole of him fell. His will fell. Man's will is diseased, it's paralyzed. He hasn't got this power and this capacity, but he doesn't know that. Now, the children of Israel didn't know that. They said quite genuinely, I will not transgress. And yet, here's the story, under every green tree. My dear friend, did you ever realize the power of sin? Had you ever realized your own weakness to stand up to the power of sin? Tell me, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the Son of God came from heaven to earth in order to save you? Have you ever seen any need of being saved? Have you ever seen the paralysis of your will? Have you ever seen your own ineffectiveness? Have you ever seen your own utter weakness in a moral sense? Have you seen the need of power to stand up against sin and evil and temptation around and within? The nation of Israel hadn't. And the prophet Jeremiah was sent to them to point that out to them and to show them the way whereby they could be delivered from it. Man doesn't realize his utter incapacity face to face with the power of sin. But wait a minute, there's a second thing. He doesn't realize his total inability likewise with respect to the pollution of sin. Not power, but pollution now. Here's verse 21. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into, a de into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Oh, listen to this. I had planted thee a noble vine, a noble vine. Holy, entirely, a right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant? Of a strange vine unto me. Now the material word here, of course, is this word degenerate, isn't it? And oh, what a true and what a terrible word it is. What's the matter with men, I say? Why does he behave like a fool as he does? Why does he turn from God? Why does he live the life he is living? Why the dissipation, the dissolute character? Why the evil that is so rampant? What is this? Well, I've said it's the power of sin, but it's not only the power, it is the pollution. What do you mean by that, says someone? Well, let's put it like this to you, using less technical language. Why is there in all of us such an obvious tendency to go wrong and to go down? Why is that? Why is it true to say that man naturally doesn't tend to go up, he tends to go down? Why is it that all of us tend to go down the stream and find it so difficult to swim against the stream? Why is the story of mankind individually and collectively always one of this tendency to degenerate? Why is it that men very rarely maintain the idealism of their youth? Oh, they start out in life, they're going to be reformers, they're going to make things better. 
They're going to make the world a better place. doesn't matter that everybody else has failed. They are going to succeed. Why do they tend to lose that as they go on? Why do they tend to be a little bit cynical as they reach middle age and become still more so in old age? How many people are as pure at the end of life as they were at the beginning? How many have an escutcheon and tarnished? What about the copybook of your life? Is it getting better? No, no. It is a fact of experience and of history and of life that as we go on, we tend to degenerate the very word that's used here. What's the cause of this? What's the matter? Why do we tend to lose things that are precious and to become less and less worthy and less and less noble? What's the answer? Now here is a very vital question, surely. It it should be the most urgent problem facing this world this evening. What is responsible for the fact that this modern world of ours is obviously going down in every respect? What's the matter? What's the cause? Well, now then, let me tell you what it isn't. It is not, you know, because a man has never had a chance or an opportunity. It is never that a man has never been given a good start or been allowed to live in satisfactory conditions. Listen to what God is able to say to this nation with absolute truth. I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. He has already told them, for of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. He's referring to his bringing them out of the captivity of Egypt. There they were, down and out, utterly hopeless, you remember. But God went down and with a high hand on his own, he delivered them, took them out. And then he said, now you're my nation. I'm going to be your God and you shall be my people. He gave them his holy law and he put them into a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land in which they were living when Jeremiah spoke to them. Here it is, taken out of captivity, led along the way, put into the new land, given everything. They didn't win it. God gave it them. They were given an absolutely perfect chance and opportunity. Ideal surroundings and conditions, not a hard land, as he tells them repeatedly, but a land that is flowing with milk and honey. What a wonderful opportunity. Could a nation ever have had a finer or a better chance? And yet they went wrong. Why did they go wrong? Not because it wasn't they were not given an opportunity. Not because they'd never had a chance. God reminds them of that. They'd had a perfect chance. And yet, in spite of perfect conditions and surroundings, down they went. My dear friends, this is the whole story of the human race. But this is what the world doesn't see today. Ah, they say, you know, if only we could put conditions right. If only we could get rid of some of these social evils, then men will be all right. Give him a chance. He's never had a chance. Think of people brought up in slums, in poverty. What chance have they got? Look, at they go wrong. Of course they go wrong. They've never had a chance. Look at their surroundings. You see, what they never have realized is this that I can point to you at the same time as you're pointing to people who once lived in slums and who went wrong, I can point to you people who were brought up in palaces, had plenty of money, everything that could be desired, who are slaves to exactly the same things as those people in the slums. Circumstances and conditions have got nothing to do with it. 
Why, the whole human race proves this. Where was it that men originally went wrong? And you know the answer, don't you? It was in paradise. It was in Eden. God made men perfect and put him in perfect environment, a perfect surroundings. Nothing could have been better. It was absolutely ideal in every respect. My friends, it was in paradise that men went wrong. In conditions of absolute perfection, man fell into sin. So the trouble is not in the lack of chance, lack of opportunity, lack of ideal conditions, surroundings, and environment. It isn't that, I say, and I needn't take you back to the Garden of Eden. Look at the present generation. Look at mankind today. It's simply a fact to state that during the last hundred years, more measures of social amelioration have been put on the statute book here in Westminster than in any other period in the whole story of the human race. Never have the conditions of living in this world been better than they are today. You can go back through the centuries. They've never been so good. And yet it is in spite of all that we've done by way of improving circumstances and surroundings and environment during the past hundred years that we are witnessing this decline and fall at this present time. This fall in morals. This fall in every respect. In spite of conditions. It isn't that. Neither is it lack of instruction. Neither is it lack of knowledge. Look at these children of Israel. God gave them his law. He called up Moses onto the mount. And he gave him those ten commandments and many other instructions. And he said, now go back to this people and tell them that they're my people. And that because they're my people and because of what I have done and what I'm going to do for them, they've got to live in this way. They're my people. They're not like everybody else. Well, now tell them this is how to live. He gave them the commandments, instructions, details how to live, what to do, what not to do, and all that followed. They could never have had better instruction. God himself instructed them. It was in spite of the law of God and the moral teaching that the children of Israel were found in this parlous condition that they were in in the time of Jeremiah the prophet. It wasn't lack of knowledge. It wasn't lack of instruction. What was it? Well, I say it's always the same. What's the matter today? Is it lack of knowledge? Is it lack of instruction? Is it lack of cultural development? Who can say that? Of course it isn't that. We've never done this so much as we have in this present century. We are better instructed, better educated, more civilized, more sophisticated than mankind has ever been. And yet, look, look what's happening. What's the matter with men? It isn't lack of an appropriate environment. It isn't lack of knowledge and instruction. What is it? Oh, my dear friends, this is the answer of the Bible. It's the answer from beginning to end. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant? It's degeneration. Where's it come from? Not the soil, not the environment. Where is it? In the nature of the plant. The trouble is within us. 
The trouble is that we all suffer from an inner principle of pollution. Sin is outside us and very powerful. Yes, I agree, but it's also inside us. It isn't that I'm absolutely pure and I'm tempted by sin from without. There's sin within me. There's a principle within me myself that causes all my troubles. Now it is this degeneration and the Bible is full of this teaching. Did you notice David confessing it in that 51st Psalm? Here he is, you see, because of his lust and his passion. David was simply going for a walk one afternoon on the top of his house. Suddenly he sees that woman. Before he knows where he is, he's gone. The temptation of this beautiful woman, down he goes. That's the weakness, the lack of willpower that I've been talking about, and the power of temptation. Yes, but you see, David analyzes himself, and he says, what's the matter with me? And he says, this is my only conclusion. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's no other explanation, says David. There's something rotten in me. There's some canker in my soul. There's something vicious and vile in my very nature. I've been shaken in iniquity and sin. Did my mother conceive me? But the Apostle Paul says exactly the same thing again in Romans 7. He says, with my mind, I see and admire this law of God. But I see another law in my members. He means in his body, in his constitution. Making me captive to the law of sin and death. That's my trouble, says Paul. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that, that I do. Well, what's the matter with me? Well, it's a law in my members, he says. There's something in me. There's a principle of evil dragging me down, making me captive to the law of sin which is in my members. Our Lord has said it quite plainly, hasn't he? He says that the trouble with men is this. He says this is the condemnation that light is come into the world? Well, why doesn't everybody believe it? Here's the answer. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And did you hear him saying it in that passage I read from Matthew 15? It is not that which enters into the men, it's that which comes out. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. You see, before you get out of bed in the morning and you haven't seen a poster, nor a newspaper, nor your television, you haven't seen anybody, but evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication. It isn't circumstances that drive us to these things. It's the thing that's in us. It's out of the heart they come. The, the very center, the pool of life, the fountain of life is polluted, it's poisoned, it's diseased, there's a cancer in the soul. It's man, he's degenerate, his own nature. You don't like this. Of course you don't, I don't like it. But is, the question is not whether you like it, but is it true? And if you don't like it, answer this question. Why are you what you are? Why do you do what you do? Why are you ashamed of yourself so often? Why will you go back to the thing you know is wrong? The thing that will make you feel hurt and ashamed? What is it? Can't you see that it's a vicious principle? It's in every one of us. Oh, says somebody, this is insulting to modern men. Insulting to modern men? Well, if it's insulting to him, let him prove it by living differently. Let him change what I read in my newspaper and what I read in my biographies and what I meet face to face in life. Ashamed? This is the truth. Man is evil. Our natures are evil. My dear friends, if this were not so, the Son of God would never have needed to come into this world. The trouble is in man himself. Out of the heart. It's the heart of men that's wrong. 
Not his surroundings. Not what happens to him. Not what he meets. It's in him. There's that in him that's ready to respond. And it paralyzes him. This vicious, evil, polluted, degenerate nature. We are born in sin, shapen in iniquity. But man doesn't believe this. He doesn't realize it. And he doesn't realize something else. That when he does begin to get a suspicion of it, he can do nothing about it. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Can you give yourself a clean heart? Can you rid yourself of the evil that is in you? Try it. And you'll find you can't. Some of the greatest men the world has ever known tried it. St. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley. I've named them many and many a time. Here were noble men who tried to cleanse their hearts. And admitted they were utter failures. One of them, top lady, puts it very well like this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You can't. It's in the heart and we can't get there. No, no, this is pollution. And man doesn't realize he's helpless. The pollution of sin within him is stronger than he is himself. That brings me to my last point on which I must say a word. Man not only fails to realize his total inability with regard to the power of sin and the pollution of sin, he doesn't realize it either with respect to the guilt of sin. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God, the guilt of sin. And man is totally unable to do anything about the guilt of his sin as well as the pollution and the power of sin. How do you say this is? Someone will let me answer you. To start with, man in general forgets altogether that he is guilty and that he's got to stand before God and give an account. The children of Israel were always forgetting it. Man still forgets it. How often do you, my friend, think of the fact that when you come to die, you'll have to stand before God in the judgment? Thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Israel didn't realize it. Do you realize it? Do you know that the teaching of this book from beginning to end is that every one of us will stand before God in the final judgment and have to give an account of our deeds done in the body in this life and in this world? It's an absolute teaching. Christ taught it more than anybody. It was because of that he came into the world to save us from the wrath to come. Man doesn't think of it. Doesn't even consider it. He's not aware of his utter inability to deal with the problem of the guilt of his sin. And you know, even worse than that. When he is reminded of this fact of the judgment. The moment he is reminded of it, of course he's conscious of his guilt. He says, ah, well, of course I've sinned. I've spent days, perhaps weeks or months or years, and I've never even thought about God. I haven't thanked him. I've gone my way, not his. I've sinned. Very well. I've got to do something about it. And what does he think? Well, he thinks now that he can do something about it and that he can fool God. Listen. 
Though thou wash thyself with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Men, really, oh, I've sinned, I've got some guilt in me, it's all right. Give me nitre, send, send some soap. And he begins to use the nitre, and the nitre is powerful. Then he uses the soap, and he's going to wash his hands clean from sin. And he'll stand before God and say, here I am, I'm clean, look at me. He believes that he can stand before God, that he can get rid of his sin, that by doing a little bit of good and saying he's sorry, he's going to get rid of his sin with his nitre and his soap. He thinks he can fool God. But my dear friends of all the tragic fallacies, this is perhaps the greatest of all, oh, the utter folly of men of thinking that he can get rid of his sin and his guilt. Do you know, man can't even satisfy his own conscience. Leave alone satisfy God. The moment a man's conscience is awakened, do you know what happens? He can't get rid of his guilt. Oh, Shakespeare has put this once and forever in the terrible picture of Lady Macbeth. After she's been guilty of foul murder, her hands and the blood. And here she is walking in her sleep and the men are listening to her. She's speaking to herself and she, she's been washing her hands. But she's walking along, she says, yet, here's a spot. She thought she'd wash them all away. Yet, here's a spot. Out, damned spot. Out, I say. What? Will these hands ne'er be clean? And on she goes, washing. Here's the smell of blood still. And then she comes to the right conclusion, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. What's the matter? Her conscience is awakened, and she can't stifle it. She can't answer it. Conscience alone can't be answered by men. The blood, another spot out. Damn spot out. But you can't get rid of it. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And there's nothing more awful than an accusing conscience. It'll keep you awake at night. It'll meet you in the morning. It'll haunt you. And you try to answer it, you'll never succeed. Once your own conscience is awakened, you'll be silenced. You'll have nothing to say. But what am I talking about? We are not to face conscience only, but God. And God sees everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. God seeth your heart, my friend. You can wash your hands, you can't wash your heart. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ put it to those Pharisees one afternoon? He said, Ye are they that justify yourselves before men, but God seeth your heart, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. David understood it. He says, it's no use in Psalm 51. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. He could satisfy men, but not God. God desires truth in the inward parts. Oh, yes, says the epistle to the Hebrews, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And here is Jeremiah saying it for God. Though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me. And all your soaps and nitre will never get rid of it. It's in God's book, the books that will be opened on the day of judgment. Read the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. The books are produced, and they're opened. And the dead are charged with the things that they did. God has got it all imprinted in his books. 
and all your erasers can never get rid of the writing in God's book. And never forget the standard of judgment. It is that we have to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength, and our neighbor as thyself. It is this, remember, that if you keep all the points of the law and yet fail in one, you're guilty of all, you've broken the law. Is it surprising that the psalmist should have said, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who, who could stand? Not one. If God should mark iniquities, none of us could stand. The whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Why doesn't man believe in Christ? Because he doesn't know this. He doesn't realize he's guilty. He doesn't realize he'll have to stand before God as a guilty sinner. And that all his washing, his nitre and his soap and all his good will avail him nothing. The damned spot on the soul will be there and God sees everything. That's the truth about man. He doesn't see his utter helplessness. As regards the power of sin, the pollution of sin, and the guilt of sin, what does he need? He needs someone to atone for his sin. He can't. He needs a new nature. He needs a new power. Where can he get them? He can't produce them. But the message of this gospel that man ignores is that it is all offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a man begins to realize his need of pardon and forgiveness, new nature and new power, he begins to say with David, doesn't he wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You do it and I'll be right. Wash me, you wash me, O God, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create a clean heart within me. That's what I need, not a bit of cleansing on the surface. It's my heart. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's his cry. Or again with Augustus Toplady, he says, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. I can't. My nitre, my soap, it's of no value. God seeth the heart. I need an inner cleansing. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. And you go to him, and then you'll begin to say things like this. Not all the blood of goats on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away our stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Thank God. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is power, power, power in the precious blood of the Lamb. What the nitre and the soap and all the energy can never do, 
the blood of Christ can do. There is a fountain. And it's filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel, the Son of God's veins. And thank God and blessed be his name, sinners plunged beneath that flood who have not merely got one spot like Lady Macbeth, but are polluted and covered and black and filthy and foul in and out. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Wash me. You wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow, my dear friend. Have you seen your need of this? Have you seen that nothing but the death of the Son of God, his blood, can cleanse you from the guilt of your sin? Have you not seen that he alone can give you a new nature, a new heart, a new life? Have you seen that he can give you new power through his blessed Holy Spirit? Is there any madness Comparable to the madness of men refusing such an offer from God himself. Oh, may God enlighten every understanding to see its utter helplessness against the power, the pollution, the guilt of sin. Oh, may God open every eye to see the fountain that has been opened for sin and uncleanness on Calvary's hill, the healing streams flowing from the Son of God. Cry out unto him, wash me, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And he will. Amen.